Discord, a podcast to explore the intersection between music and theatre. I'm Adam Lenson, and week by week, I'll be trying to figure out the conundrum that is musical theatre. Welcome to episode 17. Almost a year ago, I was fortunate enough to win the 2016 Kevin Spacey Foundation Award for Musical Theatre, along with Carl Miller and Chris Ash, in order to develop their rock musical, Wasted, about the Bronte siblings. Upon winning the award, we were introduced to the other British winners for dance, film and theatre. The winner for theatre was the director Andy Wymant for his company Squint. Andy and I decided that we could sit down and describe the similarities and differences between our process, our work, and the use of music in our theatre. Andy definitely doesn't make musical theatre, but he does make integrated, multidisciplinary theatre in which music plays an essential part. Andy's most recent project, Fear and Loathing, is a dissection of, amongst other things, Brexit Britain and Trump's America, and asks how we've become so divided. Last year, in the run-up to the US presidential election, Andy and a few of his collaborators travelled across America interviewing people as research for the creation of the piece. I began the conversation by saying to Andy that when Donald Trump won the US presidential election last year, that Seth MacFarlane, the creator of Family Guy and American Dad, quickly tweeted the words, America, you've just been sold a boys band. Now, some of you might have noticed that that's a reference from the 1957 American musical The Music Man, written by Meredith Wilson, in which a con man comes to town and says that he can stop the kids of the town getting into trouble by selling them band uniforms and training them up into a boys band. The only trouble is he has no musical skill whatsoever. He's selling them a lie. And you'll see the glitter of crashing cymbals. you hear the thunder of rolling drums and the shimmer of trumpets. Trump, ta-da! And you'll feel something akin to the electric thrill I once enjoyed when Gilmore, Pat Conway, the great creator, W.C. Handy, and John Philip Sousa all came to town on the very same historic day. 76 trombones led the big parade With 110 cornets close at hand They were followed by rows and rows Of the finest virtuosos, the cream of every famous band I said to Andy that I was fascinated that musical theatre in America wasn't just a cultural medium, but also one which can discuss and decode political and social ideas. And that it's well known for being that sort of a medium. Well, and the, you know, the fact that a week after the election, okay. Donald Trump was tweeting about the Hamilton musical is kind of crazy, isn't it? And I do think it's crazy that Donald Trump was tweeting about theatre instead of preparing for his job as president. But I don't think it's crazy that Americans view musical theatre as a relevant cultural, historical and political art form. I, I loved some of the gags that came off the back of that from the theatre community. The best one that I saw was, uh, uh, we're going to build a fourth wall and make Brecht pay for it. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> now, the next parts of the discussion won't specifically seem like they're related to musical theatre, but we will loop back there. And also, I think there is a lot to be learned. I certainly learned a lot from talking to an interdisciplinary theatre maker who doesn't make musicals, but, as I said, uses music and uses a cultural dissection that American musicals often seem to in his work. So, 
I ask Andy what him and his company Squint have been up to. So for about four years now, we've been making new work, original work. Uh, started out being quite kind of new writing and writer orientated, writer driven, quite traditional in that sense. But then about four years ago, we started work on a project off the back of the like Jimmy Savile, uh, BBC Newsnight scandal. For those of you listening outside the UK, Jimmy Savile was a once revered British TV presenter and celebrity who, following his death, allegations and information came to light about a history of sexual abuse. Responding um, to this kind of uh, vilification of um, journalists, really. Uh, And it's interesting that that was the first project that I got a team of collaborating writers together to sort of work on. Just to note at this point that Squint's work is the result of the collaboration of multiple writers. And in the same way, musical theatre is often the result of collaboration between multiple writers and creatives. It was about understanding, uh, I suppose, what I now can say in hindsight was the beginning of the death of the expert or the death of the kind of elitist person who perhaps reports news with long form and journalistic integrity Um, and you know the birth of Twitter and everything else is making short form journalism the way that most people receive their news and so we were kind of I suppose interested in empathising with the villain of the journalist and to make a piece about that so that show was called Long Story Short Um, and we then made another show a couple of years later last year in fact, um, called Molly, which was all about, I suppose, looking at the notion of evil and sociopathic behaviour. And it was kind of in the wake of a year of there being these kind of atrocious attacks like uh, the Anders Breivik killing in Norway, um, the chap who was the film director's uh, son in LA who went on a shooting spree. And we were trying to understand those kind of atrocious one-off attacks, government um, and try and kind of, I suppose, get under the surface of how these pe- how, what society's responsibility is for making these individuals. So again, it was about empathising with an unempathizable group, perhaps. Just another interjection to say, although when we hear about topics that dark, we might immediately assume that musical theatre is not a good medium for it. There's a very famous example of a musical which deals with an unempathizable group, and that's Stephen Sondheim's Assassins, again, an American musical about politics, about American history. And an example of a piece that most people might suggest should not be a musical. And so that has led us to our third and latest project, which is called, for the moment, Fear and Loathing. And that was us uh, in the wake of Brexit. I suppose trying to have, and I'm just writing an article uh, for The Guardian, which is all reflecting all about our our trip and our experiences. And I I just wrote in it, we were sort of in America having all of the conversations that we and so many of the left, and certainly the Labour Party, should have been having before Brexit Um, and so it was our version of coming to terms perhaps with um, this huge group of people who live in our country and live in America right now who are disenfranchised with established politicians to the point where they will 
do something which is in their self-interest and in their mind a sort of free fall jump into the abyss which may or may not pay off but it's better than what's here right now so we were running towards those people more than anything I think. What I like about Andy and Squint's work is that it seems to be so embedded in a contemporary moment and in a want to try and deconstruct what is going on in our world right now. But I think that we have long accepted that theatre is not a medium that can be that quick and that responsive because a play takes a while to make. A musical takes even longer. Plays probably a year or two to make. Musicals maybe five to ten years to make, which is obviously exceptionally slow when compared to the 24-hour news cycle and Twitter and the internet in general. So I ask Andy how they square that balance between the time it can take to develop a piece of theatre and trying to be responsive to the contemporary moment. It's a struggle, I think, to be immediate uh, with theatre. I mean, we have this regular thing which is an attempt to be as immediate as we can be called the Daily Plays, which is this regular new writing event. It's a little bit more traditional in terms of the way that we make it because we basically ask six writers to respond to the week's newspapers uh, and then we perform all of those six plays that are written throughout that week on the Sunday. And so we did it on the uh, week before the... um, Brexit vote. And so that's our way of being kind of as immediate as theatre possibly can be. And it strikes me that it's just as possible to respond to a new story or a contemporary moment by sitting down and writing a dramatic song and then having an actor perform it, potentially even in character. And it makes me wonder why there aren't more opportunities to make musical theatre fragments in the present moment, rather than accepting that musical theatre or indeed interdisciplinary theatre is this slow lumbering thing. But with that comes a certain amount of, I suppose, quite gestural work in the sense that you get a kind of broad commentary or gesture on what is going on, but you don't in those pieces of work so far, we haven't really, I don't think, empowered writers to actually offer any kind of solution or hope or change. It's less of a sort of deeply thought through piece of um, uh, think theatre and it's a little bit more of a kind of activist gesture. And maybe musical theatre needs more activist gestures. After all, pop music and rock music and hip-hop are riddled with activist gestures with people responding to a moment. But musical theatre seems not to do that. But I understand what Andy's saying about theatre perhaps having a responsibility not just to demonstrate our wounds or our pain or our outrage, but also perhaps to offer solutions and catharsis to those things. But even as I begin to agree with Andy, he suggests that perhaps theatre should also learn to live in the short term. I kind of feel like actually um, so often we're in a culture where both in music theatre and in theatre, when an artist puts their work out there, it's the it's it's their identity as an artist going deep, deep into the future and anyone who sees it is going to judge that artist on it. Um, and they might not have another piece of work on for another year or two years or three years and so it has to be the best, you know. Um, but with that comes um, a real lack of responsiveness. If journalists live their life like that, then we'd get an awful lot less information because everyone would be fearful of putting anything out there. I mean, maybe they do need to take a bit of a leaf from that book and think a little bit more before they print. But, um, but yeah, I think we're, we're interested in, um, 
in being as immediate as possible. And with this project, the struggle now is us both being immediate with what we put on a stage next year and allowing that to happen as soon as possible, uh, but without the thing going out of date within a week. It kind of feels as though we want to make a piece of work which is going to serve its audience. Whatever an audience takes away from it, I hope that that takeaway is something that can serve that audience for the foreseeable. It can be something that stays with them and informs their political choices, the way that they engage with people with opposite viewpoints um, for a longer term uh, and isn't just kind of, you know, a moment of activism that then they forget about in a month's time, you know. And I completely agree with Andy because I've always thought that what has to differentiate theatre is that the experience of watching it can't just engage with you while you're watching it, but it has to stay with you afterwards. It has to change the way you see the world or think about yourself. And in so doing, allows you to see into the future, even if the piece itself exists in that contemporary moment or indeed in the past. I go on to tell Andy about an interview with the novelist Zadie Smith that I had listened to the day before. She was talking about how um, writers are projecting themselves into the future all the time to try and kind of find what your present viewpoint is when subjected to like a sort of thought experiment version of the future. And she, she talks a lot about what's happened in America and, and Brexit and she says how all human beings, I just love the way she put it, she said all human beings have a plurality of opinion. Which is that like there's no one who is just racist, there's no one who's just, but they, they have a plurality of opinion and at any given moment those opinions can kind of crystallise around you know, a certain political voice or a certain political mainstream idea. Yes, yeah. that, that what we're watching isn't a, you know, half a country of evil. It's it's half a country who who that's part of their opinion. I don't know why the music in the cafe where we met got quite so loud at that point, but maybe they agreed with Zadie Smith. Andy went on to respond. One of my big discoveries and a real big kind of adjustment of my compass that I had to make within the first few weeks of being out there on this this two month trip was um, that in a two-party system, which, you know, we almost have here, but, you know, to the extreme they have in America, um, there is always a compromise in people's votes. And I know me and Andy are having a political discussion about the causes of Brexit and the election of Donald Trump, but I suddenly had a thought about musical theatre, which is that we essentially live in a two-party system, those that love musical theatre and those that hate musical theatre. I very rarely meet people who are ambivalent about it. And so if musical theatre and theatre are a two-party system, does that inevitably lead to compromise when it comes to making good work? Anyway, um, that might be a little bit tangential. So I'll drop us back into the conversation that we were having that in a two-party system, which, you know, we almost have here, but, you know, to the extreme they have in America, um, there is always a compromise in people's votes. Um, even the Liberal voters, actually, if they're voting for Hillary Clinton, it's because they perhaps believe in certain progressive policies. But down the ticket, you know, th th there's plenty of people that had to put a cross in that box for Hillary Clinton and know that they were voting for someone who probably would take them into war if the need was there 
Um, and there's plenty of people who, you know, would have been voting Hillary um, who are pacifists and they are anti-war and yet they were still voting for her in the same way, if I can make an equivalence, that a Trump voter might not like his misogynistic behaviour, might not like some of his racist language about Mexicans, but if he's going to rebuild American infrastructure and therefore bring building jobs back to their community, then that's a compromise they're willing to make, you know. I realise at this point that Andy and I could spend a while longer discussing politics. And I realise with a slight sense of envy that this sort of discussion doesn't often happen in constructing or decoding musical theatre in this country. But I decide that we have to get onto something a little bit more relevant. So I ask Andy what role music has traditionally taken in his and Squint's work. My background before directing and making was um, sound design. So uh, when I first um, was a sort of school-aged kid uh, thinking about getting involved or getting involved in theatre, it was... Um, with a sound design and video design kind of hat on and so um, that was kind of my first love really and so it's always played quite an integral role in the stuff that I've made and for the previous two productions that uh, we've made that are kind of full-length original works um, we have a composer called Reese Lewis uh, who comes from a singer-songwriting background rather than a theatre background um, and he has composed lots of our work um, and we have a really close relationship. I mean, I, I, see, I see that department as being um, a collaboration that should be brought into the making process and the rehearsal process as much as possible, uh, rather than it being a kind of like glossy afterthought that just kind of seals and glues the whole thing together, you know. Um, as much as possible, um, Reese would come into the room often, we tried on some of our work to um, be quite experimental with the way that we use actors' voices in a kind of non-melodic, um, uh, sort of soundscaping way uh, as a kind of form in some of our work. And so, so I mean, essentially, sound uh, is often um, a big expressive gesture in our work rather than just a, a sort of finishing touch. And here I realise is an evident similarity between Squint's work and musical theatre, which is an integrated, collaborative relationship between sound design, songwriting and theatre development. And Andy admits that rather than just using music as a kind of glossy afterthought, a kind of something to wrap around the piece and hold it together, it's an integral core part of the making process. And I'm not saying that Andy is making musical theatre, but what he is making is thoughtful, relevant, modern and intellectual theatre that looks to engage with an audience, that looks to engage with a contemporary moment, but understands how important music is, how important sound is and how important and interwoven into the process the people who do those jobs need to be. And this makes me think that while Squint aren't making musicals, they are in the spectrum of music theatre. Live music is also something that we've, act musicianship is something that we use as a means of storytelling a lot in our work as well. So live musicians and actor musicians, so it must sort of be music theatre, or could it sort of also be musical theatre? And does it matter? And is it helpful to include work like Squint's and Andy's interdisciplinary work into a wider umbrella of what happens when we mix music and text together? 
Knowing that a large part of the process to make Fear and Loathing involved a road trip around America interviewing people, I asked Andy if there were songs or playlists that kind of typified the geography or the memory of the trip that they took. There were some long car journeys. We drove, I didn't drive, but Brad, who was the only driver out of the three of us who were together for a long time, uh, Brad was doing all the driving. I think he drove about 4,000 miles in our little uh, Hyundai car, which I found out during the trip was um, the Hyundai that apparently the passenger seat um, airbags had been going off randomly and so they've recalled loads of the cars and I was in that passenger seat for a lot of miles so <laughs> just dreading that fearing it um, but yeah I mean because we were traveling through about 15 different states over the course of the two months um, the uh, the visual identity of those states is um, so much supported and um, I suppose uh, captured in so much of American music, which is specific to those places we were travelling through. So, as much as as, as as I could, as the sort of passenger seat DJ, I was trying to play tracks from uh, those places that we were in. And there were some huge um, discoveries through researching those um, artists, particularly when we were in Trump voter kind of heartland. And what I mean by that are the kind of Trump voters who. Uh, were perhaps Democrat and now are turning to Trump as a option who they don't see as a Republican, they just see him as a man that represents change for them and that's in the post-industrial estates of like Ohio and Pennsylvania um, and driving through those places I mean one of the first spots that I headed to when I arrived in America on my own uh, was a place called Allentown in Pennsylvania and just down the road from there is Wilkesbury where there was a Trump rally going on but Allentown has the famous Billy Joel song which is um, it's all about um, how uh, um, people in that part of Pennsylvania uh, were told that if they worked hard, they got their grades at school, they got their first job and worked their way up the ladder in that kind of American dream way, um, then they'll have a good life. And they are realising, as the factories close down, uh, that that was a lie and that was a false promise. Um, and this Billy Joel song is, you know, several years old now, but there's people having that realisation today and deciding to vote for Trump. So here is an example of a song which has real geographical, political and historical resonance. And it's a song that Andy found while travelling America looking for the way that America is changing in the current moment. And I find that there's something about this song and its combination with the ideas that we're currently having about the world and the way that they exist in tension with one another speaks volumes about the power that musical theatre can have to combine ideas with music. I say to Andy that I'd actually heard of Allentown, but only through musical theatre, because it's where the lead of 42nd Street, Peggy Sawyer, is from. So she comes from Allentown and goes to Broadway to try and be a star. 
And when she gets offered the chance to take over the lead because the lead has broken her leg, the director says, don't go back to Allentown, stay here and be a star. And I say to Andy that even in the 30s when 42nd Street is set, there is the idea in the kind of East Coast artistic community that you would want to get away from the less enlightened industrial landscapes of places like Allentown. And that maybe that suggests that a divide has always been there, a cultural divide and a political divide, which we're just continuing to see a new version of in the present moment. I'm sorry, show business isn't for me. I'm going back to Allentown. What was that word you just said? Allentown? I'm offering you a chance to star in the biggest musical Broadway scene in 20 years, and you say Allentown? Come on along and listen to the lullaby of Broadway. Okay, enough of that. Because even though I do love this show, it's quite traditional and potentially not part of the conversation of how to expand and broaden the horizons of what musical theatre can make possible. However, putting that aside, if you like tap dancing, go check it out. One of the last places we went to before heading to New York for Election Day was a place called Youngstown, Ohio. Really similar story to parts of Pennsylvania. Youngstown is a town that used to have a population of 300,000 people and as of, I think, the last count a couple of years ago, it's got a population of 80,000 people. Um, We spent some time in a bar there and we spoke to this amazing young girl in her 20s who's still kind of living her life by the principles that her father, who worked in a factory which has now closed down on the edge of town there um, taught her and that was all about basically you know stand by your hometown and work hard and um, eventually it will pay off she's been doing that she's been staying in this town that she no longer likes you know the population has shrunk there's huge crime there that didn't there didn't used to be she told us a story of how she used to work in the subway sandwich shop down the road and on a night she was supposed to be working her friend was working instead someone on drugs came in and held her at gunpoint And this is the kind of event that just didn't used to happen in her town. Um, Her father, with the skills that he had, had to move to Florida uh, in order to look for more work, which means her parents divorced. And so that kind of post-industrial story, it sounds like a headline. It sounds like something that you hear talked about in American books. But this is somebody who didn't even live through it herself. But because of the values instilled in her and the fact that she has witnessed as a teenager her parents divorcing, she's still affected by it. And she wasn't even the person that got fired, you know. Um, And uh, anyway, there's a Bruce Springsteen song which captures the kind of moment of Youngstown in the mid-90s. And Springsteen is the person that the night before the election we were seeing at the biggest uh, campaign event of the whole um, election, which was Hillary's campaign event in... um, Philadelphia, where Obama was there, Bon Jovi was there, Hillary was there, Bill Clinton was there, all celebrating, ready for the next day. Um, so that it's interesting how, I suppose, um, musicians can sometimes be uh, doing what we're doing, where they're representing um, these individuals who they care about. Here in northeast Ohio, back in 1803, James and Danny Heaton found the ore that was lying in Yellow Creek. They built a blast furnace there along the shore. And they made the cannonballs that helped the Union win the war. Here in Youngstown, here in Youngstown, 
My sweet Jenny, I'm sinking down Here, darling, in Youngstown Then my daddy worked the furnace Kept up and hotter than hell I come home from nine working my way to Scarford A job that suits the devil as well They'll attack a night coke and limestone Fed my children and made my pay Them smokestacks reaching like the arms of God Into a beautiful sky, soot and clay Here in Youngstown Here in Youngstown Sweet Jenny, I'm sinking down Here, darling, in Youngstown In this song we hear history, politics, and the plight of the individual. Bruce Springsteen, the master of the story song, does bring a theatrical resonance to this moment and finds something both timely and timeless. Thinking of music and the political landscape of America and the idea of industrial towns led me to talking to Andy about the idea of social commentary and rising up. And that led me to realise how many musicals are about social uprising. A group of people singing in chorus and in resistance. And that led me to thinking of examples such as The Pajama Game, about an industrial action in a pajama factory, or Les Miserables, about the French Revolution, or Hamilton, more recently, about the rising up of an immigrant population looking for independence. I then realised that A chorus of voices and chanting and singing aren't just things that we see in musical theatre. They're also things that we see and hear at political rallies and the idea of a chorus of thought in order to evoke a change. So I ask Andy, even though there are examples of politically conscious musicals, I think that in many cases our perception in England is that musicals are fluff and that in some way the thought of musicals as a political act or song in order to evoke a change or as an act of resistance has become uncoupled somewhat from musical theatre. I guess that social uprising story kind of it, it there's a there's a tradition of that um, and that sort of that exploration of the domestic story that goes back to you know Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams. So I think that it's probably deeply rooted in the in the kind of modern artistic history of America that those are the stories worth telling and I think that links to the American dream as well and any opportunity for an American to sit in front of something which tells them that the American dream is alive and well um, I think is something they are probably excited by if not in order to make themselves believe that in today's world through a kind of sense of nostalgia that kind of um, story is um, enjoyable as well you know Donald Trump's an amazing example of someone who somehow uh, managed to spin the narrative that he was a representative of the American dream someone who went from kind of zero to hero which is obviously totally false because he got his 14 million or whatever it was from his dad to start his business Um, but I, I wonder if there is a linkage there between Um, the kind of work that ends up being celebrated and enjoyed on musical theatre stages um, and the desire to keep the concept of the American dream alive and how those stories perhaps represent that. Um, How sort of the everyman can 
win. The everyman can climb the ladder and beat the system. This is really fascinating because a lot of the time people say that Americans like musicals better because it's an art form that they sort of invented and feel culturally very close to. But I'd never thought that actually the, the stories that musicals are better at telling are in fact stories that Americans perhaps prefer to tell as well. I mentioned to Andy that I've been fascinated for a while in perhaps the sociological grounding of a country coming to define the sort of art that they make. And perhaps the idea of wanting something and going out there and trying to get it is very American. And musicals traditionally, formally, are meant to start with an I want song, a character declaiming what they want. And perhaps in England, we're less comfortable shouting about what we want because it's less encoded into our consciousness sociologically. And so maybe the idea of someone coming on stage and singing that they want something is foreign to us and a bit strange and maybe feels like a, a less suitable art form for the way that we speak and the stories in Britain that we conventionally want to tell about ourselves. I'm no scholar of musical theatre, but one that springs to mind as perhaps a sort of postmodern example of an American musical is something like Avenue Q, um, in the sense that it's a musical that kind of takes that idea of the middle class American dream, I go to college, I get my degree, it pays off, um, and actually kind of undercuts that and subverts it because it sort of says, um, actually, maybe, maybe that ain't true anymore, um, and actually... Uh, that, that kind of like death and underrepresentation of the middle classes, just thinking about it now, um, is inherent within, within that musical. Um, it's a kind of state of the nation in that sense. <laughs> I think Andy's absolutely right about this. And because America has had a clear paradigm in musical theatre of expressing what you want and going out to get it, Avenue Q stands as a counterexample of that form by which a character wants something and then doesn't get it. And we learn something about the changing landscape of American culture and politics through that. I go back to asking Andy about the fact that he collaborates with a singer-songwriter and a sound designer and creatives from many other disciplines in his work for Squint. And that leads me to riffing on the idea of interdisciplinary theatre at the moment. I think what's so interesting to me about modern theatre is modern theatre is becoming, I wouldn't say genreless, but I would say that most pieces of theatre that people are most excited about today are ones that take strands of dance, strands of movement, video design. In the 90s when there was pure in-your-face naturalism, everyone was really interested in a kind of like really cutting away at, at what we had on stage until we had almost pure naturalism. And then suddenly everyone and then we've reacted against that, obviously, because that's not very theatrical. And that now it's like this layering that's going on, music and movement, and, mm. and all of these different sounds. And when I think of layering, traditionally I think of, of musicals, because they're, they're the kind of the, the, the greatest heightened version of that. But it sounds like you're somewhere on that spectrum. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I mean, just go back to where we started, about how in this country... Um, musical theatre as a form is kind of perhaps slightly pigeonholed into being something which is seen as kind of populist and commercial um, and I think that I, I would agree that musical theatre is like a, like a wonderful example of layering but unfortunately perhaps those layers are forced into a mould that makes musical theatre a genre rather than a form um, 
<laughs> which is not necessarily um, a kind of healthy state to be in because that layering, if unleashed, if unlocked, could be incredibly exciting, but rarely is it, you know. Um, it's often put into a very particular size cake tin and baked in a certain way. Um, but uh, yeah, I certainly, um, the kind of venue that, um, that I am really inspired by in London, for example, is um, a venue like the Roundhouse, which um, doesn't produce an awful lot of its own theatre, but is a brilliant um, model for a receiving house which kind of cross-pollinates within literally the same space, that old train, uh, uh, I don't know what it was, train workshop or something. Um, literally, you can have a Robert Lepage show there one night and you can have Mumford & Sons playing there the next night. And I just think... Um, there is that that cross pollination is there in its um, audience demographic, um, and it's just a wonderful example of um, old and young and um, multicultural um, audiences coming together to um, go into a shared space and to see work of such variation. Um, and then, of course, the work itself within the work, there is that kind of layering and multitude of forms. It's a crossroads for many art forms, um, and I. Uh, don't think by any means that Squint are at a stage where we are making, where we have the resource necessarily to make work which is um, you know, always getting in those people from across different art forms but certainly as much as possible I love to bring artists in like the singer-songwriter who is not a theatre person um, like the uh, group of um, uh, journalists or academics who are expert in their field who can actually not just come in and have a nice little chat with us but spend a week with us, spend two weeks with us and make with us, you know, that's the kind of utopia I think as to where I'd like to see our work going, um, where these people aren't just visitors in a room, they are intrinsically part of the making process of our, of our theatre It's funny because even though I come from a, obviously a different side, that's always kind of been my dream too, which is I don't know, the idea of being in a room with a sound designer who's there like an actor, able to kind of seamlessly throw in the soundscape and the ability to sit with a composer who can... Obviously there's a certain certain things that can't be devised in the moment, certain mm. things need. But the idea of being able to go, okay, there would be an event, a song that would fit around this event here, and maybe we'll improvise something at the same time that you can improvise some sketches and put down, put down some beat and mix yeah. that with soundscape or yeah. use a loop pedal. I know it, it all sounds very kind of like obviously cliched how how devised theatre identical but I, I've been really interested in how how of integrated theatre my whole life my, my greatest experiences of theatre have always been companies that kind of defy explanation like Complicite like Mihai like but also uh, extremely extremely well written musicals that subvert the idea of what people think a musical should be like Having played out this dialogue about the fact that interdisciplinary theatre and musical theatre probably have a lot they can learn from one another, I return to Andy's metaphor of a mould or a cake tin and the idea that even though musical theatre is full of layers and different disciplines, that perhaps the mould or the tin in which we construct musical theatre is too constraining and potentially leads musicals to look too similar to one another and also to exist in a very slim part of the storytelling spectrum. However, I also say to Andy that there is a problem because putting together that many different elements is extremely complicated and in many ways you need something to hold those layers together like a mould or a tin. 
or else it can be a huge mess. And that in some way, the principles of musical theatre construction and musical theatre history are very useful in creating musical theatre. But that there's a problem, like a chicken and egg sort of situation, which is how do you allow there to be enough structure to allow it to be organised, but also not enough structure to allow it to become formulaic? I think often... I mean, there's a really... This is a very simplistic point, but there's a, there's a simple struggle, I think, around... I guess music music is a music is a science in the sense that everyone comes in with an expectation of what good or beautiful music is um, and so as soon as you start to veer away from that if somebody is coming in particularly if they've paid an awful lot of money for their ticket um, with an expectation of what music is and you don't fulfill that um, then actually you're immediately going to have a struggle to take your audience with you and so I think it's just like any experimentation um, it has to start in a kind of uh, I guess a sort of an underground way where actually we are allowing ourselves to perform more experimental stuff to the most um, I suppose uh, artistically um, intelligent audiences before you expand outwards and you start to educate wider audiences um, I, I, I kind of I don't think you can do it all at once and I think it's calming to hear that idea of not being able to do it all at once, not being able to solve musical theatre or innovate in musical theatre immediately, but actually slowly, slowly, step by step, looking for ways to innovate and experiment and maybe starting small and bringing it to the most open minded audiences rather than closed minded audiences. People who don't accept that they know what musical theatre is and are happy to be challenged and then slowly growing that audience and growing that type of work. I go on to suggest that certain music might well be better in a theatrical context because it contains more information, more narrative information, more character information, whereas certain music is just tone and contains very little information and perhaps couldn't really be seen on stage, no matter how interested we were in the genre or the style of the music. Well, there's two thoughts I've got on that. One is kind of within theatre and one's outside of. I guess outside of, like, we're trained from a young age, especially in today's culture where we can, you know, listen to music wherever we are on our iPods, that we... Um, that, that it is backdrop, that it is a tonal kind of ambience, like this kind of dreadful music that's playing in here right now. And so I suppose as soon as narrative is involved, narrative at its best is something that requires investment and a kind of active audience engagement rather than a passive one. And I think sometimes if we hear that on our radio uh, or we hear that... Um, in a setting where we're perhaps looking for a tonal passive experience it's actually quite frustrating to almost be asked for that kind of engagement in that setting um, therefore it should work in theatre because theatre should surely be a place where uh, we as an audience are prepared to work you know the, the, the stage has got our full attention like we paid our ticket we've got our seat we might have our um, you know plastic glass of wine and we're kind of we're ready to engage, surely. So it's kind of strange that music theatre is perhaps, in my view, the form that asks 
for least audience engagement often. Uh, certainly in the UK, the kind of populist end of the scale um, often is the um, style of theatre most criticised for being kind of passive and uh, quite kind of numbing to behold. Um, so, so perhaps music theatre... Um, could do with asking more of its audience. And I completely agree with Andy's point here. Going to the theatre is an active experience and music and song can be active. It can need us to listen for us to hear a story, to engage with an idea or a perspective or an anecdote. And because of that, I like to experience those things. And I want more musical theatre to engage with that active idea of how much a song can do to us how much it can tell us, how much it can mean to us, and how much it can change us. But I agree with him. Musical theatre sometimes is very passive and rarely aspires to do anything except sort of blandly entertain. And when it does that, it doesn't change anyone's expectations or anyone's mind. And I think music, when placed within theatre, if the music is tonal within a narrative frame then it can sometimes feel like, especially if it's an overly long usage of music, it can suddenly feel for an audience like all of that activity and engagement that they're offering to the piece is suddenly not needed anymore and they kind of sit back and just um, sort of allow the tonal thing to just wash over them and that can be perhaps either really needed when deployed well or it can be a really quite disengaging and slightly kind of deflating experience because all of that effort that you're putting into the reading of this thing suddenly you're kind of let off the leash slightly. And I completely agree because sometimes when I'm at the theatre and the plot is really well paced and well told the last thing I want is for a song to begin that doesn't do anything and hasn't got any active storytelling purpose, and then just disengages me and takes me out of the story. In a musical, the songs have to take you closer to the narrative and draw you into a piece and into its arguments and into its characters. And if it doesn't, I think that can be problematic for the reasons that Andy says. I ask him for his reflection on pieces of theatre that contain singing and live music and storytelling through song combined with text that refuse to call themselves musicals, even though in many ways they are. Yeah, but, but maybe to avoid that kind of mould that we were talking about, like that is the approach that's required in, this, in the same way that um, on our first two projects as a company, I would have said that they, and I did say that they were new writing projects in the sense that there were three of us working collaboratively and basically trying to write a script but the way that we went about that was with an awful lot of bringing experts into a rehearsal room working with actors to do improvisation and deciding on some of those moments in the story not requiring text but instead requiring music or instead requiring physical storytelling um, and actually in hindsight yeah we're kind of writing driven but actually we're kind of a part devised theatre company and four years ago I never would have called us a devised theatre company you know um, but that was just a result of reflecting on what our process had become and so I kind of feel like it's there is a danger there's a bit of a trap in kind of going this is what we are um, before necessarily having sort of stumbled through a process which you can reflect on and say, actually, this is what we are. You know? And I think that's incredibly smart advice in terms of broadening what musical theatre is, is that maybe when you're first making a piece of work, you don't say I'm making a musical, but maybe you make the work, 
you include the disciplines and the things that you want to in order to tell the story in the way that you want to tell it. And then you reflect on the process of work and then you start defining what it is so that audiences can engage with it. And I mentioned to Andy that in episode 10 of this podcast, when I interviewed Belgian theatre maker Adrian van Aken, that he gave me Laurie Anderson's advice, which was to just call myself a multimedia artist, which means everything and nothing. It means you use multimedia, all of the mediums that you want, and that no one can really pin you down. And that musical theatre is a type of multimedia art, and so is devised collaborative interdisciplinary theatre and that maybe we shouldn't really put a label on what we're making except to say that it's multidisciplinary multimedia theatre. Yeah so, so much of this is a result of um, one of the first things that whether you're, whether you're at university or you've just left university or you didn't go to university and you went to drama school and you're thinking about doing your first project as a maker kind of thing the very first thing that you're probably going to think about doing is whether it's for 500 pounds or 50,000 pounds putting it into the words that you need to for a funding application and it is going to involve you ticking that box that says musical theatre or ticking that box that says this is new writing um, and all of those things which you just might not be ready to declare yet and uh, I feel like all young artists should be told that if they are ever ticking those things it's not because they should know what they are it's because somebody needs to know what they are you know and I think there's a difference there uh, I think it's fine for you to not know what you are but still be just ticking a box at that moment um, and you can find it as you go and I of course love the idea of being able to make work without preemptive bias or judgment or having to define exactly what genre or medium it takes place in but to an extent, there is always going to be an infrastructure based on marketing and audiences and funding that needs some information about what they're going to see. So I ask Andy how he thinks we can build a bridge between people making work and people funding and receiving that work. The only thing that I would say, having, you know, for several years now, done umpteen of these kinds of funding applications and kind of grown from being a company that was doing everything on a shoestring to now just about by hook or crook making work where people are paid a bit you know um, and we certainly you know pay our actors now um, having kind of gone on that journey and, and still being on it to some extent uh, the one thing I would say that separates a stimulating artistically helpful funding application from a really dry quite stifling application uh, is one that favours the face to face part of the process in other words the Kevin Spacey Foundation award that we won this year for our project Fear and Loathing um, required us to write I think two pages of A4 which was essentially a really sort of watertight paragraph on what the vision for the project is another on what our process might be a kind of short budget um, and then the fun bit and the really stimulating bit was then going in front of a panel of really clever well-informed people who could be and now are our mentors you know um, and have a proper conversation about what we might do and for them to embrace all the rough edges and say okay I'm going to push you on that rough edge because we do need to know that but that one there fine you crack on you know uh, and I think any application process that favours that stage rather than the very academically written essay stage of a process um, I think that's a really good start towards 
um, uh, allowing companies to just find their own way in the room more than on paper. And I think the most important parts of the process are both the way that a piece of theatre is made in a rehearsal room and the way that it's experienced in a theatre by an audience. And any sort of writing or labelling just kind of simplifies that essential experience of what it's actually like to make and receive theatre. And as Andy says, actually getting in the room with artists and seeing and experiencing what they're doing is the best way of not labelling and simplifying what theatre is. Because as soon as we are forced to write about it and describe it, then we're losing something in translation. When we, when we applied for the... When we were interviewed for the Kevin Spacey thing, what was interesting was a, a, about a third of the questions were about what audience is this for? Um, because we know with Wasted that we're definitely treading a midpoint between traditionally subsidised work and traditionally commercial work. As some of the hallmarks of commercial work, I think the music is accessible, people know who the Brontes are, um, it, it, they kind of feel like a story that's ingrained in our national consciousness. On the other hand, it's sad, everyone dies, um, there are some quite complex emotional, you know, it ends with everyone dying in misery. We know that the Bronte story doesn't end that way, so there's a kind of reflected glory there somewhere, but it's not... Um, but, you know, so we were very, um, you know, excited to, to be able to get that opportunity because of that we're in that midpoint. But at least a third of those questions were like, who's it for? What piece does it resemble? Um, you know, audiences sound like they might be confused by where this exists. Mm. Asked about the audiences you're trying to appeal to. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, a, a lot of applications do ask that. And it is a tricky one, isn't it? It's a, um, I mean, it all depends on the project, doesn't it? Because, like the project that we're working on right now actually who is it for is a really is a really helpful and quite stimulating question because um, intrinsically the project is about the divide between different sets of political values or or votes in this country um, and you know in answering that question with this project it's about speaking to this kind of liberal bubble who immediately just suggests that Leave and Trump voters are stupid, ill-educated, ignorant racist even um, and then also we also have a real ambition to make sure that this work is in front of a balanced audience and that there really is as many Brexit voters that see the thing um, as there are, you know, people in this kind of liberal theatre-going bubble, um, and so it's it's an important question for this project. Um, I don't think it's always a helpful question, and I think also there seems to be a lot of emphasis, actually. Even Lynn Gardner, who published an article last week, which was all about what theatre should now do as a result of there being all of these kind of unknown people in our country that we need to connect better with. Um, and she's kind of trying to rally theatres into trying to connect better with those audiences and to, you know, on their national portfolio evaluations, really articulate who those people are that are coming through the doors of their theatres. Um, and I understand that kind of, that call to arms, uh, but I also do know plenty of theatre makers who 
uh, especially writers, um, who need to actually just write for themselves. And I think that's valid too. Um, and those kinds of applications often negate that. And I guess, as with most things, the answer is to care and also not to care, to think about your audience and also to learn when not to think about them and just to concentrate on what you're trying to say and the stories that you're trying to tell. And that in a way, you have to do both at the same time if you want to make a really good musical or a really good piece of theatre in general. And there's other ways away from building theatres who are on the national portfolio themselves to for all of that problem to be left at their doorstep. I mean, you know, I, I, I work regularly at the Royal Welsh College and direct graduate shows there. Um, and, you know, they're commissioning four new plays a year um, to go on at the Gate Theatre. And, you know, why aren't more drama schools doing that? What an incredible... It's a no-brainer. What, what, you know, th- th- their students are getting to meet writers who are their peers or, you know, within ten years of them. Um, and they are getting to work on a brand new piece of work with them and develop it in the room, build a relationship not just with the director but with a writer and be involved in a process which is making brand new work rather than just simply being trained in the classics. I mean, like, why any drama school student shouldn't be involved in a process like that, um, I've got no idea. And I completely agree that we should be using drama schools as development labs for new theatre and for new musical theatre because of the fact that we can be experimental in those situations where the wider world doesn't necessarily get to judge what's being made. And also we can train our next generation of actors and performers to be well versed in making theatre as well as just being a performer in it. And finally you can allow yourself to work with much bigger casts than you ever could as an emerging theatre maker. In wrapping up the interview, I say to Andy that we both won 2016 Kevin Spacey Foundation Awards. Mine was defined as an award for musical theatre. His was defined as an award for theatre. But meeting Andy then and meeting him now, I don't really feel like we exist on parallel tracks. I feel like we crisscross in our processes and our work more often than people might assume from the outside. Yet, we won adjacent awards. I ask him what his reflections were, because I think I'm making contemporary theatre, as is he. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that makers... uh, would almost always find that commonality but to go back to something that you said much earlier on which is about the kind of the formalities of each of our worlds um, and the way in which it seems to be you know there seems to be a method for realizing one of these multi-layered things that we call musicals um, I think that's where our worlds kind of are forced into separation and you know I've only ever directed and I wasn't I, I wasn't the only director on it, but I, I worked on a musical as like an associate director at the um, Charing Cross Theatre, which was this piece called Usher's The Front of House Musical. Um, and uh, it wasn't my project, but I stepped into that world as a director for a short time. 
Um, and you know, there's all kinds of alien things, like the way in the relationship between the director and actors uh, being one where I was auditioning people from the back of an auditorium rather than you know working with them on my feet in a in a room. Um, the power of the producer being much greater in that world. Um, and, and I think producer is the thing. Like ultimately, um, I think theatre in this country right now is a writer-driven art form with some traces of there being director-driven work as well uh, and I think that the musical as I understand it is a producer-driven art form uh, and I think it's perhaps that reason that separates our two forms but on a making level of course we've got loads in common and it shouldn't necessarily be that way. So what did we learn from today's episode? Well Firstly, that even though people often think of musical theatre as a lightweight, frivolous medium destined only for entertainment, that musical theatre has, especially in America, often been a deeply political medium, one that is often packed with activist gesture, resistance, and choruses of people rising in rebellion. Secondly, that music and songwriting has always been part of an active engagement to try and change people's minds about the world that we live in. And that musical theatre, I believe at its best, is designed to change people's mind, to make us think, to stay with us long after we've left the theatre, and hopefully to change the world. Thirdly, that musical theatre at its heart is simply a form of interdisciplinary theatre. It uses music, movement, text, and many other elements to create a coherent and involved experience. And there are many other types of theatre adjacent to musical theatre, such as the type that Andy and Squint Theatre make, and that maybe rather than drawing boundaries between that work, we should try and see what makes us similar. Fourthly, because musical theatre is made of many layers, and it's often hard to balance and construct those layers, that perhaps musical theatre has allowed itself to create a mould, which on the one hand helps us make the medium, but often constricts what the medium can be. It seems that we should always acknowledge the structures and moulds that help us to form musicals, but we should also take them off once in a while while the work is being made, so we can expand and add things outside of the shape of those moulds and make our musical theatre more inventive and more experimental at times in order to make sure that the medium evolves. Fifth, good theatre like good politics requires engagement from its participants. Perhaps music has often become too passive an experience in our lives, piped into our worlds through ambient speakers and headphones accompanying our activities rather than comprising the activity itself. It seems especially in musical theatre we have to work hard to ensure we ask for active engagement from our audiences rather than just creating a passive experience that merely entertains while asking nothing of our audience. Because if we ask nothing from our audience, eventually we'll tell them that our medium is something that they can walk away from. Sixth, we have to be careful not to label our work too early on in the process because labeling something constrains it. It seems we should always be willing to experiment and add to our artistic processes using fragments and ideas from outside our traditional work. And in doing so, make new work without necessarily needing to label it before it's ready. And once it's ready, then it can begin to be labeled. 
And finally, we should perhaps listen to the concern that musical theatre is often a producer-driven art form. Musicals and work that integrates music tends to be more expensive, and as such, producers do have to be concerned with how to gain an audience and how to label and sell a piece. But perhaps that's not as useful to creating new and innovative work and engaging with new and untapped audiences. Because in order to do that, we need to be free to make work without quite knowing what it is or who wants it. I can certainly see the value in looking at musical theatre at times through the lens of being a writer-driven or creative-driven medium in the hope that doing so allows its innovation to shine and grow. And if we start with audiences who are already interested and flexible with the idea of innovation and experimentation, then I believe the parameters of what a musical is and could be will grow. Discord is hosted and produced by me, Adam Lenson. Our co-producer is Emma Clauber, who this week I also want to thank for properly introducing me and Andy Wyman. She met Andy first of all when he came and ran workshops in New York at Town Hall. Andy and I then met in person later that year when we both won Kevin Spacey Awards, so thanks very much to them. If you want to follow Andy or Squint's work, you can do so on Twitter at Squint Theatre. And as always, you can find us on Twitter at Discord Theatre. If you enjoyed the show, please do give us a rating on iTunes. See you next time. As always, our theme music is by Luke Bateman. <laughs> <laughs>